Hey now, we are getting over, and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times, Dada, with your, I don't know, Thursday edition of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back, the Silver King is back, and we're here once again talking all things NXT and AEW. It's just no longer really the Wednesday Night Wars, and I don't necessarily have a good weekly name for this podcast. This is it the Black and Gold Podcast, considering both shows are black and gold or yellow or whatever you want to call them. Um, I don't know what to call this. So first task for all of you longtime listeners is to tweet us at Getting Overcast. Let us know what the hell we call this edition of the podcast. Because look, Tuesdays obviously is the WWE edition. Our pre-pay-per-view shows, no matter what brand, are uh, ultimate previews. And our post-pay-per-view shows are instant analysis. What the hell do I call the weekly NXT and AEW show? You guys can let me know at Getting Overcast on Twitter, which you should be following, of course, because not only do we ask polls and want you guys to kind of send in suggestions and tweets and direct messages that we can read on the show. Uh, we also do some fun stuff over there, including release all of our shows, uh, send pre and post event polls, and of course, send wrestling gifts and videos and tweets, uh, reviews, analysis live during shows all week long. So it's every possible reason to follow us on Twitter at getting over cast. Of course, it's not the only thing you guys need to do. Stop being marks for yourselves and Go back to being a mark for me. Go back to being marks for the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, on our you know weekly WWE shows, Vintage Chris Vanini, and the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast as a whole by heading over to Apple Podcasts, leaving a five-star rating and review. Let people know how much you love this show. We got a very positive review recently, but it was four stars. And I'm looking at it, and I'm like, this guy doesn't realize that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about the five. It's all about the five here on Getting Over. So those are the reviews that we want. Five stars and tell people why you love listening, why the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is different from many of the other podcasts you either still listen to, maybe, or used to listen to, and maybe we've replaced them in the rotation. I do want to thank you guys for making our last two episodes so successful. The WrestleMania 37 Instant Analysis was our most listened to episode in a single day in podcast history, and it is currently on pace to be the number one most listened to episode in the history of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. I greatly appreciate that. And despite the fact that, I don't know, like just about 24, maybe a little 36 hours after that show, we did another WWE episode. That one's rising up the charts too. It's not, doesn't look like it's going to get into top five territory, but it may be among the top 10 individual podcast episodes we've ever published. So I sincerely appreciate you guys sticking by us, getting into this Getting Over uh, universe, for lack of a better term. By the way, that's another thing we need. So while you're tweeting us about, you know, what we should call this Thursday episode, what should we call our listeners? Because we're not calling you guys the getting ovaries. That's not going to happen. I don't know what name to give you guys, but we should come up with something. Maybe that can lead to some merch. You know, nothing crazy. A, a single t-shirt. Maybe we'll do it on Pro Wrestling Tees. Maybe we'll do it separately. I have a couple ideas that are already in the chamber. You know, maybe we'll do something fun. But look, it's basically year two of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. And we're moving right ahead. We're running along. It's looking like sooner than later, fans are going to be back in shows in a, in a more permanent manner. Uh, WWE president Nick Khan, during a interview, I believe it was with Variety, said that WWE will not have fans at a show again until it is ready to have fans at every show again. Meaning the next time that there's fans at a WWE show... Immediately after that, they're going to be going on the road. So my guess is that's going to be SummerSlam. I think that they will do SummerSlam in a stadium or a baseball stadium or a really big basketball arena, something like that, do a really big show, and then plan to tour Raw and SmackDown after that going forward. And if that's the case, then we have a few more months to tide us over. Obviously, AEW and NXT both have fans, but it's limited. You kind of hear them. Sometimes you don't. NXT this week, the fans were pretty annoying. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But WWE and really touring for AEW is where the big crowds come. And that's what we're excited to see. We got a taste of it at WrestleMania 37. And it was a taste that I didn't really want to stop tasting. I want to taste more of it. Unfortunately, we're now back in this period where we're waiting for them to kind of make those decisions. But of course, the most important thing is everyone is safe and healthy 
and things are done with utmost precaution and we can wait for fans uh, just as long as the wrestlers and everyone backstage is safe. And that's clearly the most important thing. So, okay, I went off on a tangent there for absolutely no reason, had nothing to do with NXT or AEW. So let's stop doing that and actually talk about what this show is about. NXT, AEW, we're going to run into it right now. So what's interesting is because last week was WrestleMania week and because WWE decided to give us two weeks, uh, two shows, I'm sorry, of WrestleMania and two shows of NXT TakeOver, I had absolutely no time and candidly no desire to do an AEW separate episode last week. It didn't make sense. We did uh, the basically instant analysis from TakeOver. Then we did a WrestleMania go-home show on Friday and then the WrestleMania instant analysis on Sunday, all of which, by the way, you should have listened to. So now this week, the Silver King is in a unique spot where I'm not only going to be breaking down this week's NXT, the NXT after TakeOver, I'll be doing two weeks of AEW Dynamite, and I'm going to mash them together and talk about individual storylines at a time rather than one show separate from the other show. So the way this will work is, as always, we're going to start with NXT off the top, take a short break, come right in with AEW Dynamite, and the timestamps for both shows will be in our description. So if you listen to NXT and you want to jump to AEW or you want to hear AEW first and come back to NXT, you will be able to do exactly that. But as I said, we do start with NXT. And what stood out to me on NXT this week is just how well this brand uses the women. And that's compared to everyone else, SmackDown, Raw, and AEW as well. It's not a new concept, but there were 12 total segments on the show and women were featured in five of them. So there's no other show that comes close to that percentage. AEW this week, this week's episode of AEW had two women's matches for the first time in like three months and the second time maybe ever. NXT will do two or three women's matches on an average show and that's not counting all the women's storyline segments that they throw in as well. So I do find that particularly interesting uh, when it comes to NXT. It's not just that the division is exceptionally strong, but it's that this exceptionally strong division is heavily featured across the entire show. Now, normally I will break down NXT by picking out a major topic, going into it, and then talking about the rest of the show. But other than the three new champions being showcased on the show, I didn't necessarily find that that there was one major topic, even though there was one major moment. So what we're going to do is we're going to break down NXT basically in the order that it happened. We don't normally do this. I just found it easier this week to do it this way. So Karrion Cross opened NXT by celebrating his championship saying he's back where he should be in command of NXT while simultaneously putting over Finn Balor as one of the best of all time. Cross said NXT is the hungriest roster, but he's starving. He also acknowledged the fans a couple times, but not in a negative way. So he really seems to be more of a tweener than a heel. He was loud and passionate with his promo. Scarlett didn't really say anything, but she was kind of just on his arm. So I thought it was a strong promo from the new champion. But when Scarlett's on his arm, and she's kind of like making weird faces, it really detracts from it. It's one thing when she's leading the promo or she's leading the storyline and you need her to kind of push it along. But when it's Cross there and he's just being a champion and trying to look strong, you don't really need her doing all that. You kind of just need her standing there with him, right? And I don't mean that in the way it sounds because I would never normally say that about her. But when he's speaking and it's not an interaction between both of them, she sometimes distracts in different ways. Uh, from Cross. So that is something that they probably need to figure out going forward. There was a tag team championship match next, MSK, defending against Killian Dane and Drake Maverick. Nash Carter hit an awful, awful Bronco Buster, and Dane did an awesome running crossbody outside. Wesley hit a 619 around the ring post, followed by an insane corkscrew on Dane. Lee saved Carter from the Maverick bomb. Carter hit a great springboard cutter, and they combined for their cradle blockbuster finisher, On Maverick, of course, a finisher that still needs a name, even though they're now champions, for the win. It was pretty fun. It was an exciting match, even though we knew there wouldn't be a title change. But what was so strange about this, there was was like a group of fans in the front row booing MSK. And you know NXT fans like to get themselves over, but we're not even at full capacity here. Like, the fact that these people are even in the arena, do your job, do what the AEW fans are doing, cheer the faces, boo the heels. Like, we don't need this bullshit where... There's this group, this team, I should say, in MSK that clearly they're trying to get over. And by the way, they're super exciting and really good in the ring. 
and you're booing them. Why are you booing them? Because you like Dane and Maverick more? Do you really like Killian Dane and Drake Maverick more? Because I enjoy them as a team. I think it's really smart that they put them together. But they're not better. They're not more exciting. They don't have a better story than MSK does. So I just don't even get what the crowd was doing there. But it was distracting. A lot of people tweeted at me and noticed it. And it just didn't make sense. So look, NXT fans, when you're full at full capacity, some of you want to go rogue. That's how you're going to be. I'm not going to tell you what to do. But you're at limited capacity. You're lucky to be there. Just kind of do your job, right? Cheer when you're supposed to cheer. Boo when you're supposed to boo. Uh, after the match, Dane was attacked by Imperium. And it was relatively bland. And then much later in the show, there was a taped vignette voiced by Walter who said Imperium would expand and it was here to stay. So clearly, uh, Killian Dane is an option. Timothy Thatcher is another option. I hope they go out of left field and they take some people who either haven't been on TV or have been on TV but haven't been used much and they add them to Imperium. And I love the idea of having an Imperium US, an Imperium UK, Europe type of version where Walter's the, the head, but he's only in Europe and then... Someone else, I don't know who it really would be, that doesn't seem like they have a strong leader, takes over Imperium in the United States. That, to me, is extremely interesting. Maybe it's Thatcher. Maybe if Thatcher does join them, he can be that leader in the US, and then the other three guys can kind of rotate back and forth. That would be pretty damn cool. Uh, They aired unseen footage from Adam Cole versus Kyle O'Reilly, basically showing that they were both rolled side by side on hospital beds into a local medical facility, which was just some hallway at full sale. Like, they didn't even really try to describe it. You saw those picnic tables outside of Full Sail, like where, you know, they do, they uh, tape all those, I guess, movies or, or whatever. Um, and then you just, <laughs> they ran right into the doors and you're like, oh, it's just Full Sail. Like they're clearly just using another set. So they rolled them into the doors down this hallway. Uh, somehow NXT was able to get the security cam footage from the hospital, but the rolling in there, Cole is completely strapped to the bed. O'Reilly's kind of like hanging out on the hospital bed, really more for like precautionary reasons. And Cole's screaming at O'Reilly, you're dead, I'm gonna kill you. He's cursing at him. And William Regal's like trailing them behind, kind of hysterical, like shaking his head like a dad frustrated with his kid. So it was pretty like good, pretty funny, but I have no idea what purpose this serves long-term. Like this was a perfect way to write Adam Cole off of NXT or a perfect way to end their feud. Instead, it seems like the feud's continuing. Well, what the hell is next? If this is gonna continue, past an unsanctioned match, what is there? I don't know what that answer is, but I guess we'll find out on a future NXT episode. Uh, Mercedes Martinez fought Jesse Camia. I found this to be interesting booking. Camia stood up for Aaliyah backstage as Martinez was looking for full payment from Robert Stone. She was super aggressive and all over Martinez early in the match. Martinez soon hit the air raid crash on Jesse Camia for the easy win. Then Martinez forced Stone to pay her and sent a warning to Raquel Gonzalez through commentary that she was coming after the NXT Women's Championship. Later in the show, Zoe Stark cut a promo backstage about her huge win over Tony Storm and how she wants to go after the NXT title. Martinez interrupted her and said she deserves the the championship opportunity over the rookie. So clearly, they're going to fight either next week or in the near future. But I think you have to go with Mercedes Martinez getting the opportunity over Zoe Stark. It's great that Zoe Stark got one win, but she has one win. Martinez, at least, is a veteran, and I'd love to see her get a really good match out of Raquel Gonzalez. The highlight of the show was the Cruiserweight Championship, Santos Escobar defending against Kushida. Escobar hit the ring early in the show with Legado Del Fantasma and said he took the Cruiserweight division from forgotten to the main event. He's close. He never really took it to the main event, but he's right. He took it from an afterthought to something that is consistently on takeovers and was consistently utilized in a significant manner on NXT. Then he laid out an open challenge and Kushida answered. And as soon as Kushida answered, the Silver King said to himself, well, this is gonna be a title change. And the only reason I knew that is because of what we talked about at during the incident analysis and during the ultimate preview, which is how many times is Kushida gonna lose? Like this guy has lost every significant feud he's been in since joining NXT. Despite having numerous good matches and despite winning a couple matches here and there on television, every I think he's 0 for on takeovers and every match of significance, every title opportunity, he's lost. So there is no way you're coming out of a takeover, giving Kushida a title match and having Escobar go over him again. It just would not make a shred of sense unless Kushida was leaving the brand or something like that. So Kushida did a Jushin Thunder Liger tribute early on 
Escobar choked him out with the ring post after driving him into the steps. Escobar hit a Meteora into the turnbuckles and a Hurricanrana for a near fall. Kushida went on a run and nailed an Avalanche hoverboard lock slam and another one with a bridge for a pin, if not for Escobar barely putting his foot on the bottom rope at 2.9. Escobar caught a springboard with a backstabber. Kushida countered a phantom driver into a pinning combination. They each countered each other one more time. And then Kushida trapped Escobar, folding him over to win the title. Everything about this was great. It was extremely well wrestled. It was a fantastic piece of booking to actually go ahead and change the title one week after it was made undisputed by Escobar beating Devlin in the ladder match. Kushida finally won something in NXT, literally for the first time, and maybe best out of the entire thing, you have Santos Escobar finally able to move up the card, as I've been begging them to do. I thought there's a chance that Devlin might beat him in the ladder match because it would allow Escobar to go move on, but the fact that they had Escobar win, pushed Devlin back to UK, and now have Escobar with that victory, the big takeover victory, and losing a match where he got folded up, he didn't even really get beat with a finisher, it allows him to stay strong, it allows him to move on like I've been begging them to do. It was a great match overall. Kudos to them for nailing the booking and for making this change. Now, something I did see people complaining about is that Kushida talked about leaving New Japan to come to America, fight for WWE, and be a heavyweight. And here he is, the six-time, I think, IWGP junior heavyweight champion, basically as a junior heavyweight champion in WWE with the cruiserweight title. So I get that, right? But what Kushida also said is he has always wanted to wrestle for WWE and be in WWE, and he saw this as the opportunity. So just like with Escobar, if we can be patient and say, okay, Escobar was cruiserweight champion for a really long time. We really badly wanted him to move up in the card, but he was kind of stuck in that division. We can hopefully say the same thing about Kushida. Kushida is now cruiserweight champion. Okay, maybe he's going to be in this division holding the title for three to six months. But once that's over, hopefully that creates an opportunity for Kushida to move up the card into either the mid-card in NXT or maybe even jump to WWE at some point to the main roster. I would love to see Kushida there. I know that people get dismayed by Shinsuke Nakamura and some of the luchadors the way they do and don't get pushed, but there's opportunities there. Kushida and Nakamura as a tag team, for example, would be extremely interesting and it would give both of them new life and the ability to do something and actually make a major difference on WWE television and they're friends. So it's it's not just, you know, them both being from New Japan, both being Japanese. They actually have a friendship and I think they'd work really well together as a team. But my point is, my larger point is that this is great for Kushida, both in the short term and hopefully the long term as well, because it finally gives him to sink his teeth into something. Something to sink his teeth into is the phrase I was going for. And I love it. I love it for him. I love it for Escobar. And I think it was a great booking for NXT and a fantastic surprise match on a show that didn't really have a great match booked. So it was a win all around. William Regal congratulated Kushida backstage after the match. Jordan Devlin walked up and gave him credit for being a six-time junior heavyweight champ in New Japan. And it was cool that they called out the IWGP title by name specifically. I love that. Uh, And now NXT champion. And he said that next time he was back in America, he would be demanding a title shot with Kushida. So all good. Devlin's taken care of, Escobar's taken care of, and now Kushida is taken care of. Champa and Timothy Thatcher cut a promo about coming out on the other side of Imperium stronger, and they immediately put MSK on notice. So that was short, but a strong promo. And I would, if I'm MSK, kind of be a little concerned, right? If Champa and Thatcher are going after you. If you're a fan, I should say, of MSK, you may want to be a little concerned because I don't know if you book MSK to win that match. Maybe you do. We'll have to see when that happens and what the storyline is. Then new champion Raquel Gonzalez got some celebration pyro after being introduced by Dakota Kai. Gonzalez put over her hard work and Io Shirai for being a great champion. So something very similar about Karrion Cross and Raquel Gonzalez. Both heels, both heels that won the title, neither of them in their promo acting as heels. Both as a tweener, if not a babyface. I mean, Raquel Gonzalez was smiling and laughing and yeah, you know, it's interesting, right? NXT loves to have that tweener role. And I guess as a champion, it really works out if you can nail it. But neither of these I really see as tweeners or faces. So we'll see after it, the celebration episode, which is basically what this was, who their first feuds end up being and really what side they take in those feuds. But I did think it was interesting. The lights went out and Frankie Monet 
formerly known as Taya Valkyrie, made her debut with her little dog. It was a very basic promo from her. Gonzalez said if she interrupts her again, she'd shove her dog up her culo, which is ass in Spanish. And I didn't know that this was the best debut for Valkyrie. I, I probably would have saved it until next week, given everything that was happening in the segment. It felt forced. It felt rushed. And I don't really know why she's coming in and like going right after the NXT champion. She has not done anything. And she's not even using her Taya Valkyrie name, which would lend credence to saying, hey, look, I'm a massive star coming in here. I deserve a title opportunity. I'm going right after you. She's a different person. So I didn't necessarily love her promo, but she looked good and, and the gimmick's pretty cool. And, you know, the dog being there is, you know, something a little bit different. It's fun. And the fact that they cut a promo using Spanglish kind of against each other, that was awesome as well. You don't really see that a lot in WWE. So I thought that was a really nice touch. But then out of nowhere, once Monet finished, finishes talking and Gonzalez is ready to celebrate again, Rhea Ripley's music hits and the Raw Women's Champion hits the ring. They stared each other down, then smiled, clanked titles, then hugged. And then I thought that was it just because they're actually really close friends. But Bianca Belair's music hits and the SmackDown Women's Champion walks down. They all got in the ring together, looked at an old photo of them, I guess, from the Performance Center when they were really young, raised the titles together, hugged, and they made the, a similar pose with the picture behind them. It was freaking awesome. It was a great way for NXT to put itself over. Like as much as it was putting over the women, it was NXT putting over NXT saying, hey, look what we developed, right? Look what we've done with the last couple of women's champions, the last few big named women stars coming out of this brand. And of course, you know, Bianca Belair was never champion in NXT and Raquel Gonzalez is just the new champion. And even Rhea Ripley only had a short title run, you know, only like four months or so. But nevertheless, these are now your three women's champions across the three major brands of WWE. And I think that's cool. NXT did announce that Saray will debut next week. So definitely excited for that. She has all the potential in the world. Great in-ring performer along the lines of Io Shirai, Kyrie Sane, and Asuka, since they're all just coming from stardom. That's why I'm making that comparison. But the personality isn't necessarily there. It's not the way, it's not what you have with Asuka and with Kyrie Sane. It's more of when Io Shirai started in WWE and you were kind of waiting for her to sink her teeth into something and really become more of a superstar, which is what is obviously required in WWE. So that's what Saray is really gonna use the Performance Center for. It's not gonna be so much the in-ring work and ability. She has incredible ability and one of the best forearms, I think, in all of wrestling, male or female. But it's that character work and, and becoming something more than a great wrestler. That's what we're going to need to see from Saray over the weeks, months, and maybe years in NXT and WWE. Roderick Strong and his wife, Marina Shafir, entered the arena together early in the show. I thought they looked great together, by the way. Strong in a suit. Marina was all dressed up. I was kind of, I didn't know what was going to come of this, but I was looking at them and I'm like, you know what? It's a pretty good gimmick. Like just Marina, who's a fighter, supporting her husband, trying to get him back on his feet, them looking super sharp and businesslike come up with a gimmick, you know, for strong around that, where he's no longer letting emotion and friendship get involved in stuff. And, and this is his new character and gimmick. And she's going to be by his side, which is a great use of her. But that's not really what happened. But when I first saw them, I was like, damn, they look sharp together. Like this could work. Ultimately, they met in Regal's office and strong handed Regal a manila envelope. He said, I'm done, presumably handing in his resignation. Regal accepted it and said, he's welcome back in NXT anytime. I'm not sure if this is a short-term storyline where he does just go away for a while and then comes back to NXT in some way, or perhaps Strong is going to the main roster and they're kind of taking it from the standpoint of, we don't know if it's going to work, right? Because Roderick Strong, despite him being an incredible wrestler, incredible wrestler, and an awesome technician and probably a good coach and all those types of things, it's a dry personality. It's a dry promo. It always has been. It always will be. And I don't know that he'll work on Raw or SmackDown. I think he'd have a better shot on SmackDown than anywhere else. And he does deserve the opportunity. So if he wants to go and they want him to go, I'd love to see him Friday night. I'd love to see this be something that happens, right? And maybe it works and it shocks all of us. But I don't know what else this is alluding to or, or teasing. So let's see. I hope Roderick Strong goes on SmackDown Friday. I do. And if he does, great. If not, and this is just a purely NXT storyline, we'll have to see where it plays out as I don't know what's going to happen. 
Uh, we had Isaiah Swerve Scott against Leon Ruff in a singles match. Swerve cut another great promo from his lab. He's been on point recently, and the lab is a great setting for him to appear more serious and more comfortable in his own environment. It really works, and Swerve has been totally awesome since they've kind of started doing these types of promos. This was supposed to be the final match in the rivalry between the two. Swerve caught Ruff with a Russian leg sweep from the second turnbuckle, but he came back with a springboard cutter, Escalera cannonball outside, and Huracarana off the top rope. Swerve barely escaped a great pinning combination at 2.99. It was maybe the best one that we've had in WWE or NXT really in a long time. Swerve then caught Ruff on the top rope, dropped him onto the top turnbuckle, and turned him over into the JML driver for the 1-2-3. Commentary did not call the finisher. I don't know why, but it was a very strong win for Swerve, and I was extremely excited to see it happen because, look, Ruff, cool character. Like I like him in NXT. He had his time as champion. He can have plenty of good storylines. Swerve is a guy who needs to be elevated. So getting him out of this feud and moving him on is great. But it was short-lived because later in the show, Ruff attacked Swerve backstage during an interview, rammed him into the lockers, and then drove a road case into him. It was very aggressive. Ruff looked pretty good. I love the match. I love Swerve's win. But it really needed to end with that win. Like, how many times are these guys going to keep wrestling, right? It needed to end there so Swerve can move on to something bigger and better, whether it's the cruiserweight, whether it's the mid-card. I don't really care. They work well together, and their matches are great. But I'm not enthused to see this go again, especially if Ruff ends up winning. That will absolutely crush me. And then we have the main event of the show, an eight-person intergender tag team match, Bronson Reed, Dexter Loomis, Ember Moon, and Shotzi Blackheart against The Way. I loved the idea of this match, the conceptualization of it. Eight-person intergender, Loomis is there, Indy Hartwell is there acting like a horny teenager in the same ring. It's great. There was a funny backstage promo segment, and then once the match got going on, Loomis approached Hartwell early in the match, and they may have been about to kiss when Candice LeRae pulled her off the ring apron. LeRae hit a Tope Suicida Tornado DDT on Loomis, then Blackheart asked Loomis to throw her outside the ring into like six people at ringside. Loomis caught Gargano with a slam, and then he hit silence on him and he was about to choke him out. Hartwell came in to break it up, but she couldn't really bring herself to kick Loomis. So she faked a bump, kind of like Eddie Guerrero would do. Loomis went to check on her and was going to kiss her again, but Gargano knocked him outside the ring. Hartwell got pissed and then threw Gargano out of the ring. Then Hartwell faked a bump again and Loomis carried her to the back. She smiled and gave a thumbs up in an absolutely hysterical moment. You had to love that. Reed then served as a platform for Moon to hit the eclipse off his shoulders onto Theory. Larray threw her out of the ring. Reed dropped Gargano onto Theory. Larray hysterically climbed up to try and superplex Bronson Reed. Blackheart threw Larray into Theory, and then Reed hit the tsunami for the win. It was a literal and figurative ton of fun. Morning Woods is what Xavier calls it. The way is incredible. The faces worked great together with the women utilizing Reed's size really well. I knew this was going to be good. I knew that I loved the way going in. I freaking love the way coming out. This match and segment was better than I expected. And I've already tweeted it twice. So I might as well say it here on the podcast. Forget the elite, forget the dark order or the hurt business, I guess, which doesn't exist anymore or any other faction right? Hardy family order or whatever the hell they're called. The Way is the best faction in wrestling right now. Me, I don't know what's going on in New Japan. I haven't been following with Wilson Gobernables and Bullet Club over there. I, I can't be better than The Way. The Way is the best faction in wrestling. It's the best gimmick in wrestling. I am exceedingly entertained. It is helping all four people. Johnny Gargano is finding a heel personality that he just never had, but also a comedy stroke that he has had throughout his career, but never to this level. Candice LeRae acting in this motherly role is hysterical. Indy Hartwell as the horny teenager who can't be like held back by her parents is fantastic. And Austin Theory, the combination of him doing the himbo with the idiot, with a guy who just can do a lot of things really funny, put himself in weird situations and try to get out of them. They did a post-show backstage segment that I tweeted. They posted it on Twitter, uh, WWE did, where Austin Theory, he got his ribs crushed and his lungs presumably crushed by Bronson Reed. 
so he can't breathe. So he starts talking in a macho man voice and he's basically doing a macho man impression and he's doing it in the background throughout an entire interview. The thing is hysterical. You need to go see it. I don't even care if you don't watch NXT and you just kind of let me, you catch up with what's happening in NXT by me talking about this. Go to my Twitter profile at Getting Overcast and watch this video. The way is incredible. This was a fun, fantastic, exciting main event. The Cruiserweight Championship match was great. And the women's segment where Raquel Gonzalez, Rhea Ripley, and Bianca Belair all got to kind of stand out was awesome. And of course, I did mention the Swerve and Leon Ruff match. The match was really good, even though I may not love what they're doing from a storyline perspective. This was an exceptionally strong edition of NXT, which is a little bit of a surprise considering you were just coming out of a two-night takeover where so many storylines were wrapping up, so many big matches happened. You would think, well, what the hell are they going to do on this edition of NXT? They ended up having two title matches, including a title change and a super fun main event. So NXT deserves a lot of credit for doing a great job here and certainly excited to see what happens next week as they continue now on Tuesdays. They did get, I believe, 805,000 viewers in the ratings, um, which put them, I think, number eight for the night overall with, I think it was a 0.22, 18 to 49 rating. So that was really good for NXT. Obviously, we don't know the AEW ratings before we tape this show. The assumption will be that they go higher than the 700s. I would assume they'll be in that 800 range, if not a little bit better, because it was a damn good edition of AEW. But for NXT to do that on a show coming out of a takeover on a new night, I thought that was great. So credit to NXT, credit to USA Network for promoting the hell out of NXT's night change. Not only did they do it during Raw, SmackDown, and WrestleMania, they USA Network specifically promoted it all day Monday and all day Tuesday. I happened to just have USA on between all the DVR stuff I was catching up on. And every time I was on USA and they were coming back from a commercial, they were promoting NXT on Tuesday night. And we have not seen that kind of promotion from NXT recently. So kudos to NXT. Uh, kudos to USA Network and kudos to WWE. Now, before we move to NXT, as always, a reminder that promotional consideration for the Getting Over Wrestling podcast is brought to you by Manscaped, the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. They obsess over their technology to provide you the best possible grooming experience. Manscaped is trusted by over 2 million men worldwide, and you, our listeners from the Getting Over Wrestling podcast, have a special exclusive offer, 20% off plus free shipping with the code GOMAN at manscaped.com. Manscaped is all about protecting men and they hooked us up with their perfect package 3.0, including the best ball hair trimmer ever, the Lawn Mower 3.0, featuring cutting edge ceramic blades to reduce grooming accidents thanks to advanced skin safe technology. Also in that perfect package are some products to keep your balls dry and smelling fresh, along with some free gifts, a great pair of really comfortable, high-performance Manscaped boxer briefs and a travel bag. It is time for you to trim your junk, get 20% off and free shipping with the code GOMAN at manscaped.com. Each purchase directly supports the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. That is why we're giving you 20% off plus free shipping with the code GOMAN at manscaped.com. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. Your balls will thank you. So with all of that in the rear view, let's move over to AEW Dynamite. Two shows, two weeks, two episodes, one breakdown. So we're going to weave back and forth through everything that happened in AEW last week, how it relates to everything that happened on Dynamite this week, and obviously, of course, as always, provide our thoughts on all of it. So let's start with the biggest overall storyline, which is really involving Kenny Omega, the Young Bucks, the Good Brothers, the Elite Bullet Club, whatever the hell you want to call them. And actually, do they have a name? Like, I, I haven't figured out if they have come up with a new faction name or not, but hopefully I guess they will reveal that sooner than later. So last week, Kenny Omega and the Good Brothers fought John Moxley and the Young Bucks in a six-man main event outside of a video package that they aired early in the show. They didn't really do anything to build the main event match, but the action was exceptionally strong. Matt Jackson faked a super kick and hit Omega with the DDT. He purposely avoided super kicking Omega, so Omega slapped the shit out of him and they brawled with Matt, getting a couple of near falls. Tagging was completely non-existent throughout this match. The Bucks couldn't pull the BTE trigger on Omega and Mox got incensed. He screamed at them, tagged himself in, 
Mox hit Omega with Paradigm Shift twice, choked him out, and prepared for a third when the Bucks super kicked Mox. Eddie Kingston limped out and got beaten down by the Good Brothers. Rick Knox didn't give a fuck that everyone was fighting illegally and factoring into the finish right in front of him without any tags whatsoever. The Bucks then super kicked Mox once more, and they all hugged. So this was the expectation uh, that we discussed on the show two weeks ago, the last time we talked about AEW, and it was really no surprise whatsoever. The Bucks went full heel and are now aligned with Omega and the Good Brothers, which I think is the right booking. I mean, I don't know why you would go in any other direction. The Bucks never stopped being heels to me. I've said this many times on the podcast. They have never been faces in my eyes. I don't know that it's just what I think about them or if it's their characters or whatever, but so this heel turn, I guess, for the masses was done quite well, despite, like I said, it not being a surprise and really mostly being blatantly obvious. Also last week, and this is tangentially re- related, uh, Death Triangle came out for an interview with Tony Schiavone. And of course, he didn't even get to ask them a question. Best Friends with Orange Cassidy showed up airing old clips of them attacking OC. They went back and forth on the mic briefly and nothing of substance happened. So I guess this is going to be a new feud for them, but it didn't really have any intensity to it. So then this week, there was the tag team title match with Ray Phoenix and Pac as the number one contenders against the Young Bucks. The Bucks cut a pre-tape promo to open the show, deciding about choosing friendship and realizing Don Callis was right all along. Callis accompanied them to the ring and they wore their old gear, ditching the money entrance with all the stuff flying in the air. Uh, it started at a breakneck pace with the Bucks clearly playing the heel side. They had a double powerbomb onto the ring apron to take control of the match. Phoenix got the hot tag and did an Escalera Huracarana on Nick while using Matt's arm. There was a Blue Thunder bomb for Pac that was a near fall. Phoenix sacrificed himself with a Tope Con Hero as Pac was unable to get the win despite a German suplex bridge. Nick rebounded off the ropes into an insane Canadian destroyer on Phoenix. There was a ridiculously choreographed Stereo Poison Rana deal outside, and it was the first thing that everyone really sold in the match. Up, up until that, all these moves were basically no-sold. There was an avalanche brainbuster from Pac, followed by a strong frog splash from Phoenix for a near fall, and then Pac hit the black arrow, but Matt pushed Phoenix into Pac and Nick for the cover to be broken up. Matt ripped Phoenix's mask off, and the Bucks won with a double super kick. So I thought it was a great finish to sell the Bucks being truly, you know, disgusting heels at the end of what was a fantastic match. You can always beg for more selling from all of these guys, but you can't deny the excitement and athleticism that you got. It was more than 20 minutes of great wrestling. The only real complaint I have is that Phoenix, once again, as always, is the one taking the fall. I'd probably go from a star rating standpoint, like, 4.5 stars on this. It was really well wrestled. There were a couple small minor issues I had, but really you you can't really take away from this outside of a little bit of the choreography being so blatant. Uh, Other than that, great match. You know, I saw a certain someone call this easily the best tag team match of the year so far. That sounds right to me. I don't know if it is correct. The MSK Grizzled Young Veterans triple threat match that they had at TakeOver was outstanding but it was much shorter than this. This was long. It got the opening segment of the show. I think it got at least two segments. And like I said, it nearly went a half hour. This is probably, yeah, the best tag team match of the year. So I think you put it in that 4.5, maybe even a 4.75 type of level, but Pac and Ray Phoenix against the Young Bucks. I mean, you know, I'm not a huge Young Bucks fan, but there's no question their, their ability and their ability to put on good matches with really talented wrestlers. And that's what we got here. Later in the show, Callis cut a promo with the group in the parking lot saying the Bucks returning to the family was not the end, but just the beginning. Omega cut a promo on the fans and Callis reiterated that this was just the beginning of their surprises. So that's exciting. I definitely am curious, you know, what else they're going to do with all of this. Also somewhat briefly related to this, I'm going to talk about Hangman Page because it seems like they're trying to factor him into this storyline without getting him heavily involved off the jump. Page fought Max Caster last week. Commentary said Caster was the number three ranked man entering the match. All I could think of was with this roster, Max Caster is your number three ranked singles. Like that's ridiculous. The referee was distracted and Page kicked out of a chin wrapped fist to the face, chain wrapped fist to the face. 
Uh, Page took out Anthony Bowens with an apron moonsault and then hit the buckshot lariat for the win on Caster. I thought it was a very mediocre match to open last week's show. This week, Hangman Page was backstage with Dark Order and ignored a question about the elite. It basically, you know, seems like they're trying to continue the storyline with Page being on the outs from the elite, but at the same time, not focus too much on it. The problem is he's the number one ranked men's singles competitor right now. So he should be getting a title shot very, very soon, but they haven't announced it or scheduled it or even really had him talk about the fact that he deserves a title opportunity. You would assume that's gonna come with double or nothing. If it does, then you possibly have Hangman Page with the Dark Order having his back despite him not being an official member against this new version of the Elite with Omega, the Young Bucks, and the Good Brothers. But I don't really know how we get there or you know what they're actually doing from a storytelling standpoint to get there when you still have Mox, who seems like he wants another opportunity at the title. I guess a third or a second opportunity at the title, but a third match with Omega in this series. So yeah, uh, I think the main event storyline, it's good and I'm intrigued. I really am curious and care about what's happening next with that group and are they gonna add people? What are the other surprises Don Callis is talking about? But from a match standpoint, I don't know what the direction is gonna be in terms of Kenny Omega's next challenger or his next two challengers, let alone the storyline and how they're gonna get to them. So I am kind of curious to see how that all transpires. Now, the other really big headline on AEW over the last two weeks has been the continuation of the Inner Circle versus the Pinnacle Feud. Last week, Inner Circle returned on the mic with Chris Jericho saying his plan was to use MJF, but he ended up being one step ahead of them. MJF, I'm referring to. Jericho said MJF stole his gimmicks, called him a mark, and said MJF stands for my jerk-off friend. He said Tully Blanchard is one of the worst four horsemen. FTR was interchangeable and Sean Spears was only relevant because he got fired from WWE, which is actually true. Uh, then Jericho challenged Pinnacle to a blood and guts match on May 5th. That's the match that was never held, uh, but was supposed to be prior to the pandemic, but with different people, obviously. Now it's going to be Inner Circle against the Pinnacle. It's basically a War Games match, but we don't necessarily know the exact rules of the way they're going to do it in AEW. I thought it was a really strong and passionate promo from Jericho, but a lot of his jokes seemed to fall short. The crowd didn't really respond to them, but I am really excited about the match. Pinnacle later last week attacked Jericho backstage in the second hour, and then they locked the inner circle in their dressing room. Mike Tyson came out for the save, and all of Pinnacle, except Sean Spears, were smart enough to run out of the ring, so Tyson beat him in the corner for a minute. Jericho and Tyson then shook hands, basically ending the feud that never actually happened between them, and it's always fun to see Tyson involved in wrestling, and this was a nice, easy way to use him last week. So this week, we had Chris Jericho against Dax Harwood. MJF tried to bribe Mike Tyson backstage in the opening of the show as Tyson was the special enforcer for the match, but Tyson wasn't having it. He tore up a blank check and threw it right in MJF's face. Jericho backstage said that he apologized to Tyson after realizing he and the inner circle needed to change their ways. And I loved that AEW and Jericho explained the change in the storyline and Tyson now being their friend as opposed to their enemy and how it all made sense, given him, you know, getting back into the fold with Inner Circle. Tyson in the match stopped Harwood and Jericho from using weapons early. Jericho then did the camera spot where they do the middle finger. Harwood did a rebound powerbomb in the ring. Sammy Guevara took out Cash Wheeler outside before Inner Circle and Pinnacle brawled on the stage. Tyson stopped Wheeler from using a bat and delivered a KO punch, which was I mean, I'm sure he pulled his punch, but it looked like he nailed him. So Tyson did a great job there. And then Jericho won the match with the Judas effect. It was chaotic, but they are building to a blood and guts match in a few weeks. So the chaos in this storyline wasn't chaos for the sake of chaos. It certainly made sense. Tyson was effective in his second straight appearance, and we'll probably get AEW a couple of news headlines coming out of the show. All in all, I think this is a very strong secondary storyline right now for AEW, and it has been one over the last couple of weeks. So they've done a good job with their two major storylines. Britt Baker, in a pre-taped interview, demanded a women's title match from Tony Khan because even though she's not atop the rankings, she's ahead in every other category for AEW, such as like t-shirt sales and stuff. But she said she would get her wins up anyway across all of the shows. Baker basically got the exact same promo this week, noting how she is slowly moving up the rankings. Sting came out to be introduced by Tony Schiavone and got interrupted before he could speak for the 75th straight week. Jake Roberts and Lance Archer were the ones interrupting for the third or fourth time in a row. The same boring, repetitive shit. 
Sting finally grabbed the mic back and he said he agreed that Archer is a main event guy, so he has no idea why he keeps disappearing. That was literally the entire segment. Like, that was, I don't understand what the point of this is. Are we getting Lance Archer against Sting? Or not? And if we're not, then what was this interaction? Why did it need to happen four times? Why couldn't this have just have been the first time? I'm sorry. Look, Sting in AEW, it's just not working for me. Outside of that cinematic match, which was very good. Everything else, including this. Zero point zero. The TNT Championship was on the line last week. Darby Allen against J.D. Drake. By far the best thing over the first 75 minutes of last week's show. I thought everything preceding it was actually pretty terrible. But this match and then the remainder of the show last week was very good. Drake beat the hell out of Allen at times and Darby eventually hit an avalanche code red followed by his coffin drop for the win. It was entertaining as a match and it was we got a clean win for Darby using his finisher, which is what we always talk about. The Hardy family office attacked Darby after for reasons unknown and Sting and the Dark Order randomly came out to make the save. Bunny and Ty Conti then started fighting because they had a match later in the show, but they didn't do their match immediately after the commercial break. They waited an entire segment to do it. So we got Ty Conti versus Bunny last week in the penultimate segment, double commercial break, the usual for a women's match on AEW. There was a great missile dropkick with Conti going into the barricade outside. Karushita got involved and Conti hit a superplex plus DD tie for the win over Bunny. It was a pretty good match, all things considered, and it pushed Ty Conti up as this number one contender for Hikaru Shida, despite them still kind of tagging and, and helping each other out. Now, this week, we got another TNT title match, Darby Allen against Matt Hardy in a false count anywhere match. Hardy had the early advantage, but Darby started getting over with a chair and a trash can. Then the Hardy family office came out and beat him. Dark Order came to his aid again, and Sting unbelievably took out and absolutely dominated two young athletic guys in private party. He did it before the commercial break and he was still doing it after the commercial break. Ethan Page and Scorpio Sky looked like they were going to attack Sting. I don't really know why. When Lance Archer came in and shooed them away and then hit the blackout in front of Sting. This is all going on, by the way, while the match is happening and being completely ignored. Sting threw Darby his bat, but then he walked up next to Darby anyway, so why didn't he just hand it to him? Uh, Hardy hit a low blow on Darby, then a twist of fate with a steel chair wrapped around Darby's neck. So that's the finish. The match is over. No, Darby somehow kicks out of a finisher using a chair. So, okay, Hardy sets up a ladder and a table backstage, jumps off the ladder with a double leg drop through the table, and Darby kicks out again. Okay, then Darby somehow gets Hardy on a table. He climbs a truss hits a coffin to drop off the truss, putting Hardy through the table and gets the win to retain the title. There was really exciting action here, don't get me wrong, but it made no logical sense for Darby to kick out as much as he did, especially given that Matt hit his finisher with a chair. That finisher is now worthless, right? If they did that in WWE, people would be like screaming that they did that. It was completely overbooked, this match. It was a total mess. If the only goal was to make Darby look strong, then I guess mission accomplished, but AEW goes so deep into the chaos aspects of its main events that it is so much like WCW in that respect. So despite me enjoying the match and the finish and the wrestling was pretty good, the match wasn't even the most important part of the main event for half of the segment because of everything else that was going on. And then you have Darby look way too strong. You have Matt Hardy look way too weak. And then man, Hardy going through a table again. I just got to say like, I don't know, uh, you know, after everything that happened at that pay-per-view, it's kind of like, all right, maybe he stopped doing hardcore matches, but they don't seem to be willing to pull him from those. And they just keep doing the no holds barred with him. So, okay, that's what happened. Uh, moving on though, this week we had Jade Cargill against Red Velvet. This was in the third quarter hour of the show. So credit for that, putting something in hour one, but it still got the double commercial break. So it hardly featured the women any better than the same spot later in the show. But it was one of two women's matches on a single episode of Dynamite, which like, whoa, holy shit, they actually did that. So, you know, good for them for once. Uh, it started incredibly hot outside the ring. Velvet hit a face buster and a standing moonsault, but then she missed a moonsault from the top rope and Cargill hit Jaded, the glam slam for the win. More of this match happened during the commercial break than we actually saw on television. 
Jade did have to go over, of course. Hopefully this is the end of the feud. Cargill looks really good. And I give them a lot of credit for developing her. Red Velvet looks really good. And I like that she's one of the top women in the division. The women's division in AEW, from a talent standpoint, has improved massively. The booking and the featuring of them has not. Despite the fact that they got two matches on this show, I think the total runtime for the matches probably was 10 or 12 minutes. And again, the first match was a double commercial break. So you barely saw anything that happened during the actual match. Later, that second match was Chris Statlander against Amber Nova. Statlander looked great, by the way, with a power slam, press slam, and a flipping senton. She won with the Supernova sit-down pile driver. It was a great showcase for her in her first match back. And it was really good to see her looking nice and strong and really clean also in the ring. So it was nice to see Statlander um, work in that manner. We also got this week a pre-taped promo from Miro asking where Kip Sabian disappeared to and saying he's going to go for gold after AEW. So everyone better watch out. Obviously, I'll believe it when I see it with Miro at this point, but it would make sense if Miro is the one to take the TNT title off of Darby Allen. That's nothing shameful for Allen to lose the title to Miro. And certainly for Miro, that would be a big win in AEW to get his first title. So that's my projection right now from the Silver King. I don't know if that's actually what's going to happen, but if that did happen, I think I would be happy with it and it would be a good piece of booking. Christian Cage said he loved competing against Frankie Kazarian. Taz walked up last week and offered him a spot in Team Taz, thinking they could help each other and gave him time to decide. Later, Taz again tried to get his team on the same page, but nothing came of it. Then this week, Christian was supposedly walking around backstage looking for a challenger. They never showed it. While Team Taz was stewing that he hasn't answered them and it's been a week. Christian came out for an interview with Tony Schiavone and you know the drill. He barely got like a sentence out before Team Taz interrupted. God forbid someone be able to cut an interview in the ring. Then Taz was mad that Christian was wearing black and orange because those are his colors. All right. Hook distracted Christian and powerhouse Hobbs absolutely ruined him. First outside the ring, then by driving him into the steel steps. I guess this is the Sting storyline, but now with Christian, except they actually attacked Christian and they never attacked Sting because Christian doesn't have a bat like Sting did. So, you know, they're going to have a match next week. AEW doesn't really do DQs, but I hope that there's there's an interference in this match. Otherwise, you're basically going to have Luchasaurus beat Hobbs clean in a second AEW match. And Hobbs is someone who they should really be pushing and putting over. So unless they have plans for Christian to go after Omega and this title, then I'm not exactly sure, you know, what the booking is or what the plan is um, in this aspect. Last week, I believe it was, we got Jurassic Express against Bear Country. The match was made purely to promote Godzilla versus Kong. To be fair, the match was probably better than that movie is going to be, but that's not really saying much. Luchasaurus won with a chokeslam and a standing moonsault. QT Marshall last week cut a promo from the Nightmare Factory that was clearly written for him. Like, I don't know if he was reading it, but definitely memorized it. He said Cody Rhodes surrounded himself with vanilla midgets and Marshall has young, hungry guys who have been overlooked. It was poorly edited. I don't know if anyone noticed, like people were talking and then they got cut off. It was edited poorly. The promo was bad and it was generally just horrendous. Like it was exceptionally bad. This week, Anthony Ogogo made his in-ring debut against Cole Carter. They really played up that Ogogo is an Olympian with the logo all over his gear and tights. Agogo punched Carter in the stomach and the referee stopped the match. It was almost as bad as the Mandy Rose Dana Brooke finish uh, over on Raw where they just walked away for a double countout. The guy got punched in the stomach. It's wrestling. Let him get pinned. Like what? Why are you ending the match? Because he took a kidney shot or something. Like, it didn't make any sense. But that was Anthony Agogo's first match. He did like two moves and a punch. And then lastly, this week, Thunder Rosa cut a promo saying she's going after the NWA Women's Championship. I still don't understand why two women's titles are on a show that doesn't book women's wrestlers well. I guess Serena Deeb is part of AEW and she's the champion. So that's part of the reason. But again, they can't get one division booked well. Now they're trying to do it with two titles. So, you know, I'm not exactly sure what they're doing there. But, you know, as far as AEW goes, Dynamite, the last two weeks to kind of wrap it up and give you an overall review. This is, I'll break it down into four quarters, right? The first quarter, so hour one last week, I thought was terrible. Truly terrible. I don't know how anyone watched that over TakeOver. It just didn't make any sense. Hour two last week was much stronger. It still wasn't necessarily great, but it was a stronger show. It kept you captivated, 
gave you reasons to watch, the matches were good, and the storytelling was solid. This week's Dynamite was a huge improvement. Uh, Both hours were totally entertaining. If this had gone up head-to-head with NXT, I think you would have had a really good battle because NXT was great this week. AEW was great this week as well. They figured out a very smart uh, booking strategy, which is that in the first few segments of the show, they did whatever they could to tell potential NXT or WWE viewers who may have been checking in for the first time or just seeing if they wanted to watch this on its own on Wednesday nights. They did whatever they could to put a lot of great wrestling and familiar names front and center in front of those eyeballs, whether it was Jericho, the Young Bucks, you know, Ray Phoenix and Pac, etc. They just overloaded it in the first like probably 45 minutes of the show to say, hey, if you like or recognize these people, or if you really enjoyed that first match, here's what's to come from AEW. And I thought they really hooked a lot of people, even though I watch every week, they hooked me kind of saying, oh, wow, that's a really exciting start to the show. And then as things transpired over the rest of the show, they gave you enough nuggets to kind of stay tuned and and be interested throughout. And then obviously concluded it with a main event that was, despite it being chaotic and a little bit crazy, was very entertaining. And Darby Allin against Matt Hardy with with a strong finish and the TNT champion going over. So ultimately NXT, AEW, both on a good track. Uh, You know, we're not going to really be talking about this going forward from a competitive standpoint, because the truth is they're not going head to head. And really the shows can operate in their own universes. And it's really a for better or for worse standpoint that this is coming from. Because on one hand, competition historically makes wrestling better. NXT operated in a way in which it was certainly trying to compete with AEW. And AEW operated in a way where if NXT had a big show or it looked like there might be a down week or something like that, they would try to take advantage of it and win the ratings war. Uh, One thing I also noticed is AEW spent a lot of its show um, I don't remember if it was last week's show or this week's show. I forget which one it is. With like showing fans in the crowd that had signs on the war is over or the lone survivor on Wednesday night and a lot of things like that. So AEW certainly very happy. Now we'll see if the ratings play that out, but AEW is now going to have to operate on its own and operate in a way where it doesn't have something pushing it to always one up. And they're just going to have to let their storylines and booking kind of rest on their own laurels and and be extremely good to bring viewers in and bring people to the pay-per-views. Will that work? I don't know. I don't think it'll be any worse. So I can only imagine it getting better potentially, but maybe they lose a little bit of that fire, not having that real head-to-head competition. That's all going to remain to be seen. But what I can say is for the first time in a while, AEW has two big-time storylines happening simultaneously that really have my interest. Obviously, Kenny Omega and the Young Bucks. And by the way, to their credit, fans begged for the old Kenny Omega. And I know they're using it in storyline, but it's actually happening. Like this is the old Kenny Omega. This is top tier wrestler, heel, uh, with the Young Bucks being heels and them all being as as a team pieces of shit. That's what you're getting. And now you have it with a really strong mouthpiece in Don Callis, which is something they really didn't have in New Japan, as well as the Good Brothers. Now we'll see if the Good Brothers are still around long-term and if this impact relationship keeps happening, uh, Omega does have that match with Rich Swan coming up at the Impact pay-per-view. So there's gonna be a lot of interesting things to see how they shake out, but this storyline's going hot. And then Inner Circle Pinnacle, it's really good as well. I actually probably believe they are rushing into it a little bit, not so much the formation of Pinnacle, but bringing Inner Circle back so quickly and already going to blood and guts just on a TV show. It feels to me like this should be a main event of a pay-per-view. But clearly, I guess on May 5th, because they're booking it so ahead of time, they're going to try to pop a rating. They hope, I guess, get to 1 million. We'll see how close they get. If they get into the 800 or 900,000 viewer range already this week, then 1 million is not a huge ask. But if they're still in that 700 range, it may be pretty tough to pop a rating for even a Blood and Guts episode. So a lot of stuff to keep track on. In regards to AEW, NXT off and rolling with their new storylines coming out of TakeOver. It was a great Tuesday and Wednesday night of professional wrestling action. A reminder, folks, we need a name for this show, something that we're going to call it every week. So if you have one of those names or if it pops into your head, tweet us at Getting Overcast. That's also where you can send us DMs and tweets that we will read on the air, along with getting episode drops and a ton of other great stuff from your friends here at getting over. And one more reminder, do not forget to head on over to Apple Podcasts 
drop a five-star rating and review. Let people know how much you love this damn podcast. All those reviews matter. All your listens matter. All those times that you tell your friends and family, share on Reddit, share on Twitter. Hey guys, if you're looking for a great wrestling podcast, I have the one for you. It is the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. All the time you guys do that, it helps us. As I said, we are on pace for our biggest episode listener-wise ever with our WrestleMania 37 Instant Analysis. And if we hit that, the Silver King is going to be exceedingly happy and exceedingly grateful. We're going to take a couple days off. The Silver King is going to be able to rest his voice, sleep, and not watch professional wrestling for a couple of days. I am so excited not to watch wrestling. I love wrestling. But to take a couple days off and just breathe. I'll watch SmackDown, but I'm not going to have to tape anything until Tuesday. I need the break. We have done so many episodes for you over the last three weeks. The Silver King needs a day or two off. So with that, we will end today's show. I will finally stop talking, get some water, rehab this voice. Thank you all for listening. As always, I will leave you with just three final words. Bye for now.